Welcome to Cyanotopia, a podcast celebrating cyanotype and the artists who use cyanotype in their art making. Each episode features a short introduction about cyanotype, as well as a long-form interview with an artist who uses cyanotype in their art making. The artists talk about what they make, why they make it, and how they make their work. My name is Marilyn Krasner, and I make each episode of this podcast. I wanted to make a podcast about cyanotype because I have been having an intense love affair with cyanotype for a solid year. And I think it's natural when love is still fresh to want to talk about it a lot. My mom died unexpectedly in April 2021. I live in Aotearoa, and she was in California. If you've been through a big grief, you might understand my need for distraction. And I am very grateful that I discovered cyanotype a month or so after my mom died. Cyanotype has been my companion during this time. A lifesaver for me. A brain saver. A joy maker. I'm also a mom and I love that I can show my kids that art doesn't have to be stay within the lines perfect. It is beautiful even when it's uncontrolled, messy, and water gets everywhere. And this podcast is my way of honoring cyanotype and a gift to the cyanotype community and the creative community all over the world. Even if you're not using cyanotype, I think the interviews will resonate because the artists I speak to in these episodes are so interesting. And because the cyanotype community is made up of people from all over the world, and this podcast is in English, each episode starts with an artist offering an explanation of cyanotype in whatever language they choose. If you want to support the artists you hear on this podcast, please refer to the show notes and find out how to buy their art. I've listed their websites and social media information, along with a list of links to artists, books, and websites that they mentioned during their interviews. You can find the show notes for each episode in your podcast app or on my website, www.marilynkrasner.com. That's M-A-R-O-L-Y-N-K-R-A-S-N-E-R.com. And please keep making your art. The world needs your art. And it's okay to make art even when times are really hard because you're a human. And really, it's one of the best parts about being a human being, I think. For the second episode of Cyanotopia, I spoke with Christina Z. Anderson. Christina is an author. She's written a series of books on alt processes. Specifically, one I spoke to her about was Cyanotype, The Blueprint in Contemporary Practice, which is a two-part book so full of information that I think any of your cyanotype questions could probably be answered with that book. It's a fun conversation, and I think you'll learn a lot. Enjoy the show. Ja, Blumen und Pflanzen, das waren schon immer ganz, ganz wichtige Lebensbegleiter, Begleiterinnen für mich. Durch sie habe ich vieles gelernt über Schönheit und übers Leben. Und deshalb war für mich die Zyanotypie, wie ich damit angefangen habe zu arbeiten, eine ganz, ganz großartige Entdeckung. Weil mit ihr ist es möglich, so das Wesen und die Eigenart von Pflanzen auf wundersam schöne Art und Weise äh, sichtbar zu machen. Ganz, ganz wunderbar für mich ist auch diese Farbe, also dieses Berlinblau, dieses großartige Spektrum von verschiedenen Blautönen. Und je mehr ich mich mit der Zyanotypie beschäftige, umso mehr realisiere ich, wie wohltuend dieses Blau ist. Also ich lebe in einer sozusagen ganz blauen Umgebung und ja, ich habe so wie das Gefühl, dass mir äh, mit der Zeit jetzt auch so fast schon blaue Augen gewachsen sind. Ähm, ja, wenn du äh, Interesse hast, eines meiner Bilder zu kaufen, wie kommst du dazu? Am besten du schaust einfach dir auf Instagram und Facebook äh, meine Artikel an. Da findest du sehr, sehr viele meiner Bilder oder auf meiner Website. 
und dann nimmst du mit mir Kontakt auf über E-Mail. Ich freue mich, von dir zu hören. My name is Christina Z. Anderson, and the reason why I go by Z. Anderson is my maiden name is Zopfi, and there are so many Chris Andersons out there that I use my middle maiden name, and um, I have been in alt process since 1998, and um, it is my medium of choice, and cyanotype is one of the processes that is also my medium of choice. It is the best process to start working with if you want to get into alt. I had my first alt process experience back in 1998 in a class that I took from a professor who taught at Montana State University, Rudy Dietrich. And I knew immediately, I learned cyanotype then, uh, and gum printing and Van Dyke Brown and salted paper and platinum. So, I mean, it was a huge class. And I knew right away that that was my area. I mean, absolutely right away that I would be in alt. Um, I graduated with that degree in 2000 and, you know, I was um, a non-traditional age student. And uh, at that time I thought, well, you know, I'm going to ask the uh, director of the school if he needs a teacher. And I would teach because I needed darkroom space. And he hired me three weeks later and I started teaching um, 2000 to 2003, but I did not teach alt. I taught black and white photography, uh, beginning black and white photography and experimental black and white too. And so then um, I went away to graduate school, which I knew I would do because I knew at some point I might want to become a professor and You know, in the United States, you have to have a degree, an MFA, which is considered terminal, uh, a terminal degree in order to get tenure. So I went away to Clemson and I studied under a man, uh, Sam Wong, whose specialty was alt process as well. And so I spent two years doing gum, printing, mortem, sage, all these, you know, hand coded processes. Came back and as luck would have it, the job opening was there for me to teach, um, to uh, pursue a tenure track job. And I got the job and I've been there since 2005. Well, yeah, I've been there for, you know, well, since 2000, actually. So in the process of teaching, one of the things I really like research, I love research. And um, so when I would make handouts for the class, um, you know, we'd be doing this process or that. I would do all the research on it. I'd type it up in a handout and I would um, have it for the class. And then at one point I thought, you know, I might as well put these in a spiral binder and save myself Xeroxing. So I spiral bound it and then it sold. Um, I decided it was... I can't remember, Malin Fabri of alternativephotography.com. I don't know if you know who she is, but she's got the probably the biggest website devoted to alt uh, called alternativephotography.com. And um, we got in communication and, you know, she offered to sell it on her website. And it went from this ridiculous spiral bound manual to selling in 40 countries to being a, a published book, um, you know, full, full press book. And in the meantime, in I think 2015 or 16, I became an editor for the Routledge series of contemporary uh, alternative processes uh, books. And um, I wrote my gum book for that series and sort of the rest is history. That's been, you know, seven, six, seven years or something. <laughs> So that's my background is being a university professor. Now um, I co-direct the school um, of film and photography, but I teach classes. I teach alt. I teach experimental black and white. The topic came up that we really needed a cyanotype book for the series. And cyanotype was a book uh, process I always did under um, gum printing or by itself, but I didn't really consider it my primary process. Gum printing was gum, palladium, mordensage. I asked two particular people to write the book for the series and they both said no. And at a certain point I bit the bullet and I realized, you know what? I got to write the book. 
So I never set out to write the book. And um, that was two years of research. And uh, it was an immense learning experience for me because I came to it not knowing really the importance of paper, um, humidity, acidity, alkalinity, chemistry, formulas, all those kind of things. I didn't know that stuff. I just did cyanotype like everybody else does. And so um, I worked with three uh, men uh, the whole year, year and a half, communicating back and forth. So I'd figure out something, they'd figure out something. And that was Sam Wong, John Jackson, Sandy King. Sandy is a man, not a a woman. (laughs) Um, And the four of us would share, you know, notes and experiences. And if I thought that something might be true, I would have them test it before I would put it in the book. And so that led to a very, um, you know, a lot of paper testing um, and really getting to know the cyanotype process and getting to the point where it is one of my favorite processes, you know, for its mood, for its, you know, blueness, for um, its ease of practice, ease of teaching. Um, it's an absolutely gorgeous process. So th- that's my history. What were some of your big surprises as you were in the process of writing the book and that that process you described about testing with those three other people? There's three things I would say that surprised me. Um, I will preface it with the fact that as a tenured professor in a research, Carnegie Research One University, um, 40% of my contract is research. So I am blessed to teach in a university environment that encourages me to research. Not only encourages me, I have to. And, um, you know, I have a 50, 40, 10. I teach 50%, 40% is research and 10% is service. When I got into cyanotype, one of the things I found were there were so many different formulas in the literature that I was like, okay, I'm going to start at square one and I'm just going to use 10% ferric ammonium citrate, 10% potassium ferrocyanide and start from there and start increasing because most of your formulas are 20% ferric ammonium citrate, 10% or actually even 8% potassium ferrocyanide. And I had had problems before with teaching cyanotype and there, there would be um, uh, sort of a grainy white thing that would happen or it would wash off or it would be dull blue, you know, all these problems. And, you know, the highlights would be blown out. And when I started doing the 10-10, all of a sudden, a lot of those problems disappeared. It was so strange. First of all, it was faster. It was smoother. It printed highlights better. It was a prettier blue, in my opinion. It was more of a turquoise uh, blue, uh, more of a green blue, and generally easier. And since that period, I have not, I've only taught a 1010 solution. Um, the only difference is that your very darkest darks might not be quite as dark as if you use the higher form. So that was number one, was finding out that the, 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 what you would call the commercial formula was probably a little bit too heavy in ferric ammonium citrate, the green stuff. The next thing was how important paper was. I could not believe the difference because I would use whatever was at the bookstore. And when I started using unbuffered papers, um, I did not have the problems that I used to have. When I see like, um, there is a great, well, first of all, again, Malin's website, alternativephotography.com. But there are two groups, at least on Facebook. One is the Cyanotype Group. One is World Cyanotype Day, both run by wonderful people. There's a lot of information on there about Cyanotype now, which we didn't have, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago. But I see some problems cropping up all the time. And the first thing I want to say to everybody is, oh, my gosh, watch your paper. First and foremost, Get a good paper that is not alkaline. And the trouble is all the papers nowadays are alkaline, except the specific ones for alt, which would be Hanamil Platinum Rag, which is what I teach my students on, Arsha's Platine, Legion Revere Platinum, one you're probably not going to be able to find. Well, maybe you will in, in you know, the Australia, uh, New Zealand area, but that would be Herschel Platina type. And I'm missing one. Well, of course, there's Hanamil Sumi-E, which is a washi and stuff. So you really have to, if you're having problems and the print is blue-gray and it's slow to expose, 
it is usually the paper. So that was the next thing. Two more things. Third thing was the importance of humidity. I live in an environment that's probably 25% humid in the summer. I mean, it's really, really dry. And also in the winter. Actually, it is always dry. Um, So if my paper is not humidified, the solution doesn't sink into the paper and then it goes in the developer and then it washes all off and you wonder what happened. So I've been using humidity. And the fourth thing was this goes against all chemical facts. But if you like new cyanotype and you like hot classic cyanotype and you have both on hand, you can mix them both together one to one. And it's kind of the best of both worlds. It shouldn't work chemically. Mike Ware has told me that. But a lot of people have had success with doing those two processes mixed together. So I think that that was, I did not come up with that idea. Sam Wong did. Um, He was doing it just merrily by himself in the background. Never said a word about it until one day he said that. And I was like, wow, you know, maybe that should be in the book. And he just said what he did. It wasn't rocket science. It was just mixing the two. And his prints are gorgeous. I mean, he does beautiful cyanotype work. So those were the those were the surprises. When you're doing cyanotype, do you use the combination of new cyanotype and classic, or do you just use the 1010 of classic? Generally, um, I teach, boy, I've got all of them. Um, they do require different negatives. Um, I always teach the 1010. Uh, and I also mix up some new cyanotype, bring it into the lab. But by the time I do that, the students have already gotten so used to the 1010, they're you know not really interested. So, um, but I would say in my practice, hmm, I would say in my practice, I do the 1010 the most of the three, you know, maybe uh, 70%, 10-10, 20% new cyanotype straight, 10% SWC, what I call, you know, Sam Wong's hybrid formula. Different negatives, different exposure times. New cyanotype prefers different papers. Um, So, um, but yeah, for ease of use, just the regular classic is great when you first started out and you took that class in 2000, you all, all was for you. What was it? Had you been a photographer before that? Well, the funny thing is, is um, my history is in painting. And um, I was a painter from the age of 15 oil painter. And so, and I, my first degree was I started in art and then I decided I was having babies at the time and French. Um, I decided just to major in French because it was offered one or two days a week and art was like a big commitment. And so I ended up getting a French degree. So when I went back to, to college years later, it was not to get a degree because I already had one, but I wanted to get back into painting And then I took class upon class and then I really liked it. And I, you know, I was a non-traditional age. I didn't know if I would fit in, but it was absolutely wonderful. I loved the school. And one of of the requirements was to take uh, black and white photography. And I am not a mechanically literate person. I will admit that. I don't understand machinery at all, cameras, um, et cetera. And I was not happy about having to take that class. And it, within 12 weeks, it took me 12 weeks to learn F-stops, shutter speeds, and how those fit. Um, but again, once I got into that, um, that class, and I loved it so much, I probably annoyed my teachers to no end, because literally I was dense when it came to mechanics. Um, but I thought, I'm going to take this class, and I'm going to take that class, and I had seen Rudy Dietrich's gum prints and I was like, they look like paintings and I want to learn that process. But the only way I could take that class is if I was a photo major. So I declared a photo major and a painting major. And um, I did both. I got a BFA in painting and a BA in photography. But as soon as I was done 
I don't think I have oil painted since I graduated in 2000. Um, I, because in photography and in gum printing, I was able to do what I wanted to do as an artist. And it was, you know, having my hands on the materials, using color, um, just being involved in the creative process. You could do it quicker, easier, and um, more photographically accurately in all process. And it was absolutely like anybody with a painting background is going to respond to gum printing um, or cyanotype or anything where you're taking a brush and coating a piece of paper. So that, that was my background. And that's what led to this aha of this is exactly what, what I want to do with my life. I didn't know I was going to teach though. The only reason, as I said, the only reason I started teaching was um, because I needed the dim room, dark room space. No, I had a dim room. Sorry. I needed the dark room. And um, so, but once I started teaching again, it was like, wow, this is really amazing. I can teach people. It is um, a mentoring process. It's not like I know everything and my students don't, and I'm this lecturer or anything. It is this peer um, working together that is absolutely awesome in the creative fields. And, you know, I've got students that discover things that um, I don't discover. I've got a student right now who's going to teach himself carbon. I don't do carbon. I've got a student right now who's mixing casein and gum um, and, you know, working on that. I've got another student doing collage work in casein. And, you know, I taught Christotype class. You, you come from New Zealand. Do you know who Leanne McPhee is? Okay, so... Leanne McPhee lives in Adelaide, um, Australia, and she wrote the Chrysotype book for the series. And Chrysotype book is gold printing. And um, our MSU colors are blue and gold. So my dean was like, you should teach a Chrysotype class because it would be how fitting to do a print made of gold. So I literally started that class in August, never having done the process with 11 students and an alumnus. And we learned together and the students taught me things. They found out stuff about the process that it was like, you know, working with lab partners. It was awesome. It was really, it was kind of hell uh, for me because I was not on top of it. But it, by the end of the semester, it was like, that was the best thing I've ever done. So what about your students? Is their background photography or painting usually as well? Or is are they undergrads? They're undergrads. Um, yeah, only undergrads. And they are all photo majors. So I only teach um, juniors and senior photo majors at this point. Sometimes sophomores. Actually, that Chris type class was a lot of sophomores. But um, they get beginning black and white photography before they come into my class. But I teach workshops all over and people come in never having open Photoshop or certainly never having done a digital negative. And um, so, you know, I, I teach people from rank beginners to, I don't know. I, I have taught some expert digital people. Uh, you know, I've never taught an expert alt person because if they're going to take my workshop, they're, they're not going to be expert and take my workshop. You know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe be advanced and stuff like that. But yeah, no, I've taught um, successfully all levels of students. When I came into ALT, which would have been 1998, we were, there was no such thing really as digital. It was just, well, that's not exactly true because there was Photoshop back then, Photoshop 4, something ridiculous. But nobody had really done ALT too much with digital negatives. I think Dan Burkholder's book <clears throat> was about 1994, somewhere in there. Um, Dan Burkholder must have been doing digital negatives before that time, though. So maybe late 80s. So um, I remember the first time I was, you know, I was making Kodak direct duplicating film enlarging in the dark room, which you, I don't know if you've ever done that. It's a lot of work. Um, of course, it's not made anymore. So you had to do lift film in the darkroom, make these large and large negatives, or else you had to shoot four by five film, eight by 10 film. And that was just one black and white negative, which of course would work 
adequately enough for cyanotype, but, but not the best. And so in uh, 2003 was the first time I actually printed a digital negative. And what I did was I just printed an image out on typing paper, inverted. And I made a gum print out of that negative on typing paper, no curves, no nothing. And lo and behold, it printed. And I mean, you could with cyanotype right now, you could go to your computer, invert an image. I think you can do it on your iPhone too. I think there's a way in the iPhone settings. Um, I, I Somebody showed me it, but I don't remember, but where you can actually invert any kind of image, you could print it out on a piece of typing paper and you could print it in a process. You're not going to do that with palladium because palladium is eight, 10, $12 a, a mill. You're not going to do that with the expensive processes, but my gosh, cyanotype five cents. I mean, uh, us dollars, five cents for uh, one print. <laughs> you know, It's like, why not try all these weird negative things? What I really appreciate about cyanotype is the, the fact that I've just decided I don't have control. I mean, I think maybe your, your process maybe is a bit more controlled than the process that I do just in my backyard with the sun, you know. I think as if I was a young student, I would be, that would just kind of blow my mind a little bit. Here's these chemicals that even how I paint them on the paper will affect the end product so much, um, which is not really something, you know, that I can control on that. Do you find some of your students are just kind of, it, not necessarily just cyanotype in particular, but this alt paradigm kind of opens their minds a bit? You brought up a really important point, the point between control, working a process in a controlled fashion versus just freewheeling it, just having fun. There is a balance there. I think my students feel liberated when they get in the, in the dim room. I think that they feel like, wow, I can do whatever, especially the fact that I use digital negatives because they don't have to go out and photograph with film. They can just photograph with their iPhone and bring their images in and print out a transparency and go for it. So um, you can, if you want to make exhibition worthy cyanotype work, you probably have to buckle down, pay your dues and learn the controls, you know, which is what the book is all about that I wrote was a lot of um, how to really get exquisite cyanotype prints. Sometimes that is a killer for creativity and just progressing in the process. I'll give you an example. So um, on Facebook, and it would have been, I bet it was on the cyanotype list or the alt photography list, alternative photography. Either it was Anne-Marie Borg and a woman named Mary Thomas. And Mary Thomas uh, lives in Wales. Anne-Marie is in London. There was this scuttlebutt about um, cyanolumens. And I was like, what the heck is a cyanolumen? Because I was revising my experimental photography workbook, which is all black and white darkroom, and I was doing lumen prints in the process. So here um, were these two women who were doing the coating black and white expired paper, or even new, you could go out and buy black and white paper, but they're literally coating black and white paper with cyanotype chemistry, just like you and I mix putting it outside in the sun under organics, maybe saran wrap, maybe wet, exposing it in the sun and getting um, these part lumen prints, which is lumen prints are way, way, way overexposed black and white paper that you don't develop. You never put it in developer, you put it in fixer only. And they were getting these just exquisite prints. So I wrote both of them and I said, you know, could you share your process? And they explained it. And Mary Thomas from Wales sent me snail mail, two of her little prints, and they're for two of her cyanolumens, so I could see them in person. And they are prettier in person than they are on online. And a lot of times you'll see things online where it's like, oh, wow, that's gorgeous. And then you see it in person, it's not as great. They're beautiful. And they are, those two people are so loosey-goosey what I call Lucy Goosey, they are just doing this and doing that and nothing, you know, it's all in the moment. And um, I really respect the both of them as artists. So you do not have to be controlled. You've got to put play in it or else you're just going to 
it stifles the creativity sometime to not experiment. So when I wrote the cyanotype book, uh, it's got a pretty extensive troubleshooting chapter and the book is dense. I do realize that in some respects, um, but there's always places you can find, you know, don't read it all at once. Like just look at certain things. So this week I saw a, a situation that I've never seen before. And I know that the person who experienced it in his classroom is, you know, very knowledgeable, but it was with a particular paper and, um, the cyanotype solution was flaking off in like um, granules, like it in the wash water, it was coming off in like little separate granules. I have no idea whether, I don't know. I have no answer for that. So I'm still surprised when, when something like that happens, I don't have an answer for. Usually I can troubleshoot most problems, Um, but that one was a surprise. So the, you're talking about the unpredictability of a process, whether you whether you know 100% how it's going to look and turn out. Um, I can probably guess right now, maybe 90, 95%. You know, I, I'm, I've got my practice down to a point where, you know, my negatives and my profiles, uh, et cetera, down to a point where I can pretty much predict it. But sometimes things like that happen, which... I know I don't have all the answers and I don't know uh, if we all do have all the answers um, ever with all process. So just accepting that is okay. <laughs> so can we talk a bit about your science type practice? What are you doing? Okay. Um, so right now, so when I teach um, it's really important for me to work in the process that I'm teaching. So all fall semester, no cyanotype. It was all um, chrysotype because I, I really need to immerse myself in the process while I'm in the classroom. So when I teach experimental black and white, I do experimental black and white processes. When I teach alt, I do alt processes. Um, so this semester I, I'm teaching cyanotype, palladium, and gum and combinations thereof. And so when I teach um, those processes, I do them. And my cyanotype uh, right now, my practice, um, well, actually it's really kind of boring to say this, but um, I've got a P800 Epson printer at work. I've got a P900 and a P700 in my office at home. I've got a, a 3880. So I've got all of these Epson printers And I'm right now calibrating profiles for each printer. So I am having to update the entire book profiles for every single process in that book. And you're talking 10, 12 processes, 13 maybe now. So that's been my goal. And so I've had to um, work with the P900 with cyanotype. So what I do is, you know, I print these step wedges and I get these profiles made and then I print my work. And my work is um, right now I'm very much interested in uh, the southern landscape, southern U.S. landscape. And it has to do with this uh, plant called kudzu. And kudzu grows over everything. And uh, what I like and why I photograph kudzu is because it's entropy. It's nature having the last laugh. It's nature taking over. Um, man cannot kill it completely because if they kill kudzu, they'll kill the soybeans and all the you know fauna and flora and stuff like that. So it is the most amazing plant, but it's this representation of sort of this nature taking over man. And so I will go down um, and photograph uh, at least once a year in the South and just get in a car and drive 1,500 miles by myself with my camera gear and photograph these sites and, you know, these backcountry roads. And, and so I've got, you know, maybe over the years, I think I've been doing that since 2003 when I first saw it. So I've got, you know, and I'm a terrible, I'm a brutal editor. If I don't like something within a year, it's gone. I don't keep thousands of images on my computer, but I probably have, let's say between two and 400 images um, that I've kept out of all those um, years of photographing. And those will eventually become a body of work and they'll be in cyanotype and gum and palladium and 
salted paper and lumen print and chrysotype, you know, there'll be multiple processes um, showing this entropy. Um, so that I would say that my work is really about um, a push pull between beauty and ugly. Um, what I call the contemporary vanitas. It's um, just life and, and people existing in it. And just this, this sort of, um, this sort of conversation between perfect and imperfect, between beauty and ugly, between tragedy and happiness, you know, all those kind of things, you know, that, that dichotomy of what we call life, you know, on this planet, which is, you know, difficult at times and at other times it's absolutely gorgeous. And that's what my work is about. Do you go to the same places when you go on these road trips? Are you taking photos of the progress or the destruction or whatever word somebody wants to put onto that since 2003. Yep. I've gone, I've revisited the same. Um, there's about six sites that I go back to every time I go there. Um, but the States, um, I've gotten a little bit wider with my travels. Um, so there's Georgia, um, the whole of Georgia, uh, South Carolina, North Carolina. When you start getting up in the, in the mountains, it's not, you know, as prevalent. But um, last year in the summer, I went to Tennessee in this corner of Tennessee uh, that has this huge lake. And it's absolutely, I've never been there before. So I'll start photographing that. But to go back to these same places over and over and over again and see um, the changes is, uh, that's a pretty big part of my project is, time-based over my gosh it's going to be 20 years now it'll be 20 years and you know a a year um of these same places yeah it's i have not um and i think that's something to talk about is um when you're working on a series when is a series over when do you feel finished And, uh, you know, in the early part of my career, I was very exhibition oriented uh, because I had to be. Um, I had to have exhibitions in order to get tenure. And then when I got into book writing, uh, which is not normal for an artist, I think most artists don't write books, but I do. And how that happened was just so strange. But that's been a 10 year um, part of my life that I've concentrated more on books than exhibition. And so now um, I've just written my last book um, on the experimental darkroom, and I will go back to making work full time. And um, doing this time-based project um, is is my one goal. Um, And if a project is really good and speaks to your heart in some way, I don't know as if there's ever a time where it's done. Um, There have been projects I've worked on that I have abandoned. Uh, I did a lot of nudes when I was back in uh, college and also in grad school. I still continue to do nudes and I'm not interested in them anymore. They have they don't speak to me. I think that um, that if I were to push the genre, it would have to be in ways that um, haven't already been done. And I don't have enough interest in it to make it my my work. So I don't I don't do them anymore. Um, but the kudzu I've not gotten tired of. I've never gotten I've never come home from a trip going, OK, that's the last picture I'll ever take. So um, and I'm trying to think of other projects. One of the other things I do a lot is I photograph uh, my family. My husband stands in a lot of my photographs what I call the spiritual landscape. You know, I'm very interested in the spiritual landscape when an image becomes a spiritual landscape. What it is, what is it about the image that makes people think in those terms? And that's another one of my projects to work on. And have your children participated in your art? <laughs> Funny you should ask that. <laughs> So last year I thought, so in the summer we go to Minnesota and we have a cabin there and all the family and grandkids come and my kids are all grown. Um, 
And so I thought, what better place? I am going to teach them how to lumen print. So I brought all my black and white paper, my contact frames and the chemistry and stuff like that. We could do it outside together as a group. And I thought that they would be so excited about it. Um, There are only several uh, in 20 that thought, wow, this is really kind of cool. But it really didn't float their boat like it does me. And um, I've got one uh, grandchild, a granddaughter who uh, is into cyanotype, which is really exciting. Um, And I... I've got, actually, I've got a daughter that's got a graphic design degree. I've got a daughter that's got a um, printmaking degree. She's an accountant. The graphic design degree uh, daughter is um, an HR person for a hospital. So, you know, they've got their day jobs, but they've got that creativity as part of their lives. Um, So I, I think that they've grown up with that, like I did with my mom. Um, who was an artist, but I don't know as if it's something that they are pursuing at this point, you know? Yeah. One day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My daughter loves cyanotype as well, but um, she's an artist, you know, my son could care. He even says now, oh, blue, you know, (laughs) I hate blue. (laughs) It's so blue. People are like, oh, I don't want to do that because it's so blue. It, it grows on you. It that blue color is so um, intriguing, coupled with the right subject matter. I've had people say that alt is very female dominated or a very feminine process. But do you have any sense of that feminine, or is that not your experience? Wow, that. That is such a long question. I'll try to answer it in two parts. Um, And no, I um, am very, uh, you know, growing up in the time period I did, 70s, um, where gender roles were changing. And I also grew up in a family of seven women and one male, you know, one one, uh, brother who was quite a bit older than me. And I was number eight, you know, so um, I grew up in female culture and my mother was an army sergeant type. I mean, not not in reality. She was very like, "Mm," like this, you know, so she was a matriarch. So, and I went to all girls school. So I never had um, these sort of male, female issues growing up because I was never held back or I never, you know, felt like I was different. You know, we were just all females, blah, blah, blah. Um, And then um, when I got into alt um, and I went down to what was called the Alternative Process International Symposium, and I started going to those um, conferences every two years. I was one of so few women at those conferences. And usually the women at the conferences were um, um, wives of the guys there. And it was the strangest thing that I was in. I would say probably at those alt conferences, 20% women at best. And people who were really, really into alt, I was there were very few of us. And the respect was maybe not particularly there. And I remember going to my first, uh, my, well, it wasn't my first APIS because my first was in 1999. And I went to this one APIS where somebody came up and actually knew my name. And it was absolutely blew my, me away. In fact, he said, Christina. And I was looking around thinking that there was somebody else he was talking to and he was talking to me. And it absolutely blew me away that I realized at that point, people knew who I was. Um, now, so there's that. Alt has changed. It has gotten so many more women. And when you think about the women that have been in alt for far longer than me, Jill Enfield, writing her first alt books, Laura Blacklow, I learned from both Laura and Jill by reading their books, um, Suda House in um, in um, California, um, Thelma, I can't remember her last name, but anyway, B. Nettles, Betty Hahn, um, uh, Sarah Van Curen, all of these names of women that were in the alt movement writing books, and yet at these conferences, it was all male. And then in the photo, the second part of your uh, question to answer is in the field of photography that I teach, 
Um, when I first started, I would say our program has pretty much always been 50-50, even a little bit more women than men, maybe 54-46. And it's kind of gone along um, fairly equal. So when I taught the Chrysotype class last year of 12, almost all, I think, did I have two women? And then when I taught, when I'm teaching all class this year, it finally, I'm looking out at my class and I realized one of the 11 is a woman. So that was strange. I don't know what that means. I don't know if this is, you know, an anecdotal story or whether, I don't know. But generally photography has always been male dominated, except lately, no. Um, all used to be male dominated, um, recognition wise, but I think that women have always been in it. And I think that that percentage is getting 50, 50, Mm. but I think that the women that are really into it, hardcore, um, are not, uh, they're a little bit fewer and farther between, um, in general. Yeah. Yeah, because if I were to think of all the best gum printers out there off the top of my head, um, a lot of male names come up, surprisingly, because that's a very painterly, loosey-goosey process. Um, So, yeah, I I, I don't know. I'm watchful of this gendered bias um, in alt and in uh, photography in general. And let me tell you, I get flack for um, there. There are times where I get flack, uh, not necessarily that they're giving me flack for being a woman, but um, that I get more scrutiny and more criticism because of my gender. Positively. I could write. I could write stories for you of the stuff that's happened <laughs> to me. So uh, yeah, and I, no names. <laughs> and it's, um, it's a threat. It's threatening. And I'm not sure why, because again, like I say, I grew up in all female. I didn't, you know, I didn't have to play gender roles when I was growing up, except in the culture, you know, growing up in the seventies, certainly there was gender culture. Um, but, uh, you know, I was fairly sheltered from that. So when it happens, it really surprises me. Um, I will get many, many times, um, people asking me, uh, personally off list, um, you know, direct messaging me or, you know, with questions, um, about their problems and never acknowledging my help. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm sort of this, you know, background, (laughs) background resource that, that, you know, goes by the wayside. And and that happens a lot. And I I think, you know, women maybe are a little bit more um, able to give thanks where thanks is due. And, you know, maybe, I don't know. It's, it's just surprised me when it happens. And yet you keep going. You keep, (laughs) keep working, keep shooting the kids. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I have to say, I appreciate your brain so much and your ability to to share verbally what is in your brain and your experiences, because that's really this is a real gift, I think, to people who are interested in in these practices. Well, thanks for saying that. Yes. And, you know, I, I can say that cyanotype is such an entry level process. It is so so enjoyable, so satisfying that you've got to find your own walk in it and not feel like your walk is any less or better for that matter than anybody else's. And um, I've just seen some amazing things come out of, I could give you lists of names of people that I really respect their work that are very loose with their working process. Um, but you can find a lot of those people on the alternative photography.com list. And, and I have no, uh, I have no um, monetary connection with that list. Um, the only connection I have is with a uh, Malin who was the first one who sold my book. So um, it, it's kind of weird that way that I remember back, 
you know, how many years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it was, where she said, I'm going to have the largest uh, website on all process. And she does. I think she's got 30,000 people. I will mention one more thing. And before, before we close and a person to watch is Annette, and I'm going to pronounce her name wrong. It's spelled G-O-L-A-Z, but it's pronounced Gola without with a silent Z. She's the one who wrote the cyanotype toning book for the series. And she has perfected tricolor printing in cyanotype by toning. And again, never would have occurred to me to do like it blows me away that these people come up with these ideas. It's like, where did you think of this in the first place? She is going great guns and she is, she would be a great person to interview and talk to. She's a very gracious person and she's discovering some pretty amazing things in this process. And I'll, I'll part with one more thing. When I wrote uh, the cyanotype book, I had no idea that it, it, it would sell quadruple any of the, of the other books in the series. Why I didn't know that is pretty stupid of me because cyanotype is the most practiced process out there. So of course people are gonna buy a book on cyanotype. And I think with Annette's book also on cyanotype toning, I think cyanotype is absolutely blossoming in its in its era or age that it probably has never seen before and um, because there's new things you can do and have fun with and you've you've got to look at that book especially for your your botanicals oh my gosh you could do some really fun things that way thank you for listening to cyanotopia please remember that links to references mentioned by the artists, other artists, books, websites, are all listed in the show notes. I'm always open to feedback, and I'm always looking for people to offer introductions to this podcast. So please go to the show notes and get in touch. And I'm wishing you sunshine wherever you are. See you next week.